1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Motorsport Podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz.
0: Some things are made to cope with puddles and rain. Others deal with the stickiest of mud. And as for the snow, that takes a warm coat and sure footing. But when it comes to dealing with all conditions, there's only one thing that springs to mind. Mercedes Benz Formatic, all wheel drive performance in any condition. So, whatever the weather or road throws at you, you're ready. To see the Formatic range for yourself, visit your local Mercedes Benz retailer. I'm Ed Foster, and I'm the online editor
1: of Motorsport Magazine. I'm joined today by Joe Dunn, our deputy editor, Nick Trot, our editor, Simon Aaron, our Features Editor, and the 1979 Formula One World Champion, Jodie Schechter. Jodie, thank you so much for inviting us into your home um, and sparing us some time. I know how busy you are. So it's much appreciated. Yeah, pleasure. Before we go, anyways, something I mentioned uh, beforehand was you were our first ever podcast guest back in 2009. Um, and since then, we've, we've done 100, well, yeah, about 100 podcasts. So it's great to have finally have you back. Um, no, i didn't know it was the first one actually, yeah. yeah well we didn't tell you because you would have thought we were a bunch of amateurs we we, we <laughs> well, still did are anyway <laughs> yeah we, we still are still we, won't, we won't <laughs> we weren't going to advertise it um now uh, things i'm gonna usually we have a sort of a rough script that we work through but today i changed things up a little bit because we've got so many readers questions um that i've actually got six pages of them here so i'm sort of going to pick through them and what i've done is i've tried to organize it roughly into a timeline order but if we jump around uh, t- we jump around so um Thank you to all the readers for actually writing in and, and asking all these questions. It's made my job a lot easier, actually, <laughs> this month. So thank you for that. Um, I'm going to go straight to one from Mike Burbeck. Um, and this is taking you right back um, to 1970. And he first saw you, um, he said, I first saw you race in 1970 when he was an eight-year-old boy. And he was mesmerized by your sideways style in a Formula Ford at Crowthorne Corner at Kyle Army. Does it, is this ringing bells? Uh, yeah, yeah. we've got so many questions, I can always jump on I was wondering, I, was, <laughs> yeah, I, w- right, I wasn't yeah. jumping that far back. Um, but yeah, yeah, so yeah. He, he just wanted a bit of, um, he goes on to say how delighted and proud he was as a South African. that um, You went on to win the, with the World Championship. But his question is about sort of t- how you tuned and prepared. Did you do everything yourself back in those days? How was it? Was it was it very yeah, basic?
2: I, I started with, a re- my dad had a Renault uh, dealership. He had a Renault dealership and I, he gave me a car to go to work. And a second-hand Renault 8, and then uh, did, went once to work, and it came down for the first race, and then and and that Renaults were very fast in saloon cars at, the, at that time. The works Renaults had done a really good job at doing all the modification, and so I built I built the engine, gearbox, everything myself.
1: Do, do you look back on those days sort of fondly? I mean, it must have been great fun because you were really just racing for the for the joy of it at that stage, weren't you?
2: Well, I, I hope I was all my career for the joy of it. Mind you, for when you get into Formula One, it gets hard work. But um, yeah, yeah. in fact, it's quite strange, I think. When I see a picture of my Renault, it gives me more of a warm feeling than all my other cars.
1: Really? Yeah. It's interesting. We we have got a question later on about out of all the cars you raced, which is your favourite? Was it that early Renault? No, no, I don't. I don't know if it's my favourite,
2: but you know, I'm getting it rebuilt actually in South Africa. Yeah, completely rebuilt uh, or copied, should I say? Um, I don't know. You know, just I look at it. I suppose those are the days where it's it's always very exciting getting there. You know. Um, I remember when we came over here that we were going to have prawn cocktail for breakfast. That was, you made it then <laughs> if you did that, you know. but, but it, that was, it was really exciting, absolutely, g- g- going up the ladder, yeah.
3: Who, who were the guys that you rated when you were racing the Renault, who, who, were the, who were the main opposition people that some of the audience might not necessarily have heard of?
2: Well, I, it's, South Africa, there was Scamport who was the head of um, uh, the Renault works teams, so the thing was possibly to beat him. Um, and I used to get, I was too scared to talk to him and I used to get the spares manager to ask him what, what pistons are you using, what uh, camshaft, and they helped us, um, but I didn't, didn't know about anybody, I just wanted to beat everybody, so I didn't, didn't seem to worry about that side of it really.
4: How long have you have you have you had that car since then, or did it disappear and you managed to discover it again? What's no, the story disap- of that d- car? It
2: disappeared, and I tried to find it. I couldn't, and a, and, a, and a pal of mine that was at school with me and helped me a little bit when when we were there. He's rebuilding it for me in
4: South Africa. You're going to bring it over here when it's
2: yeah, well, I, but I, yeah, the, the the regulations are different, so. It'd probably scare me. To I, do do I,
1: I can actually, <laughs> t- I can hear Nick's cogs whirring in your head <laughs> in terms of a uh, future track test in motorsport. Well,
4: I, it's just, I, I, love, I love cars that go away and come back and we have an emotional attachment, don't we, yeah. to our cars. Uh, thing
2: we used to have a roll bar and I used mm. an exhaust pipe so it was lighter. You know. And every time I came home and I couldn't do anything to it, I just drilled more holes in it. You know. <laughs>
3: I'm, I'm sure we'd find a class for it at Goodwood somewhere. There must be, yeah. surely.
1: I'm sure
5: there is. I was going to ask about your sort of inspiration when you were uh, younger, at that age, in, in South Africa, who who your sort of inspiration was to get into driving. I know there was John Love from up in Rhodesia, slightly before your time, but whether there was anyone else? Uh
2: no, no, I don't think it was at that point. My dad had an agency. The, the, the Formula One race was in the 60s in East London. My uncle actually raced in 38 in the big circuit, so uh, when people came for the race, for the Grand Prix and the one in the middle, there was a, my dad used to say, come into the workshop and you can use the workshop, and some people stayed at the house, so it was, it was all around, yeah, so, I, yeah.
1: Uh, do jump in. I'm sorry, usually I can kind of see everyone in the podcast. But um, <laughs> today, I, today I can't. Um, so please just jump in. I'm, I'm not ignoring you, Joe. Um, so uh, moving into your early F1 career, and um, we've got a, a question here from David Joe Klotz. Um, and this is regarding your time at Wolf. Um, what was your motivation for joining such a new team as Wolf? And then also did the WRO1 surprise you? We've got quite a few questions about the WRO1 because it, it seems to be sort of you know, a, that a nice car fun. that, that yeah. many people love.
2: Um, well, I'd done three years with Terrell. And I really didn't want to stay there. And um, there wasn't a lot of other choices. I had to talk to Ferrari quite often. But it, wasn't gonna, it didn't look like it was going to happen. So that was an opportunity. So I said, okay, I'll come. But I want this amount of money and I want these types of people. So I got Peter Wall, got Frank chucked out. <laughs> and we had Patrick Head then. Went, I remember going to a test in South Africa and Patrick Head, and we just went, I uh, worked really well, and we went faster and faster and faster. And, um, but then he left quite early, which was a, which was a pity, because I think, well, he says we could have won the championship probably, because he designed half that car. And um, I remember sitting at Brands Hatch and saying, I don't go with um, Frank, he's a real loser. <laughs> you know? Well, at that time, he was, actually. <laughs> you know? He hadn't qualified the car before and stuff like that. So. But there, I think it was a year later or two years later, they were beating everybody.
1: Yeah, hindsight's a horrible thing.
4: Was uh, there an extra satisfaction in knowing that this, this team was growing at that time and you could influence the way that the the company and the the car was?
2: When I joined them, they hadn't qualified for half the races. They asked me to drive the car in Watkins Glen and I'm I'm just... Patrick says I would have been in the middle of the grid and they didn't qualify. So then it was, but we had 20 people in the team. Ross Braun was in the workshop and um, that was really fun because it was tightly packed and in fact, uh, we wanted to test. I sent a Telex to old man Ferrari and said, Can I test? And we were the only car that ever tested other than a Ferrari on his circuit. And It'll he said, Yes. Wow. And that was before the season. And then we went to Argentina and won, not because we were fast, but just were reliable. And wow. you know.
4: So no, that, so the wolf tested a Fiorano in yes. Ferrari's backyard? Yes, yeah.
2: Bef- before, the, before the Grand Prix season started. It was yeah. a hell
4: of a telex. What, what was yeah, uh. yeah, well you had one of those, <laughs> those little things that came in there, you know. yeah.
2: <laughs> you may not remember that. <laughs> no, 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 I,
4: I'm intrigued by it. I wonder what you wrote to convince him to allow to you to do it. I just asked him, I
2: just went yeah. and said, can I, can I come and test at your circuit? Yeah. Yeah. I used to do that all the time when I raced for Ferrari because yeah. if you talk to anybody else, they give him a story they want to. And so I went there. with Brenda? She would then translate it for him. Yeah, because I just oh, I'm talking too much. But coming out of our, um, Brazil, and we were standing around old man Ferrari there, and the engineer was there, and then and then, and he asked me through them, uh, what was it like? when well, you car? And I said, no, the engine, the Ford engine's better than us. It's pulling away, and they wouldn't tell him. And I said, no, 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 they didn't tell him, <laughs> they wouldn't tell him. So well, because they, was, they were scared of him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, the engine was something that I think he really was more was proud of, and the, probably the guy would have got fired, but I, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we, we've actually got a whole section of questions on, on Ferrari, um, but there's there's one here that's sort of part of another question I, I might just jump in with. Um, Juan Carlos, I, I have no idea about this, so you might tell me this isn't true at all, but he said, by the way, do you recall a fast trip from Monaco to Nice Airport on the Shoreside road with your Ferrari road car? Does that ring any bells with you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowed to ask about that? Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> Well. <laughs> it's all right. We've
2: got plenty of time, James. <laughs> okay, okay. So uh, I'll blame it on you. I used to get um, migraine headaches and that took a Sindol it was called, but the next day it was really irritable. Anyway, a Ferrari 400 going to the airport, and you know, the road like this, and uh, so I'm going, this, and this guy pulled in front of me, and then I go like this, I go like this. I just got mad, I went in front of him, put my brakes on, on that big road like this. He jumped out, I snucked him once. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he was, he has glasses and he started bleeding like this. I thought, well, okay, they're gonna, They I just tell him what happened, because he came shouting in French to me. And uh, straight into jail, and yeah, and nobody would take my calls, and I sat in jail like this for the whole time. They switch on the lights all the time. It was just concrete, and the next morning they said they, they want to keep you in prison until the, the trial in three weeks' time. So now, I just retired at that time. So uh, anyway, we, I got home, had a bath. I mean, that was a real. Dramatic experience and opened the newspaper, and the guys I met there had a whole lot of arms <laughs> that was in the cell with. Thank
1: oh, you. Goodness me. Yeah. I, d- I did not think the story would go that way. No, I, I have to say. Was <laughs> yeah, that was excellent. Okay. Carlos, thank you very much. I, for the might question. Have a, I might have a related question
4: actually. A, a, a number of years ago, I looked into. Um, a, a story about how how Gilles would drive from Monaco to uh, the factory in Maranello and would just go flat out all the way. Uh, am I right in saying that you, even though you obviously enjoyed your road cars, you you would never sit with well, him or? Well, it
2: was sli- slightly, you know, he was, he was, he liked the image of being the daredevil and sure. carefree and everything like this. And I went up with one and I said, don't, you know, don't. don't. And he was fine until he got to about. Two kilometres from the circuit, and then it started wheel spinning and doing this <laughs> and doing all that. But he he wasn't he wasn't the impression he gave. He was serious. He worked hard at it, um, but he liked to be the guy, and that was his downfall. In fact, the showmanship side of him. Yeah, he wanted to win every lap
1: and wheel spin yeah. and
2: you know that type of thing. And I wanted to win the world championship, and you know that's probably why I won it. <laughs>
1: I'm going to just jump forward to the Ferrari section because we've got lots of questions on Jill. Um, one of them is from Peter Butler, just asking what it was like having Jill as a, as a teammate. Um, and there's, a, there's another one here from Bruce Allen. Um, apparently, he had a funny nickname for you that was Fletcher. Why, why did he call you...
2: Uh, there was a book called Fletcher with a, uh, some type of bird that would fly and go do things that had never been done before. And when I did a, an American series, Can-Am and that, there was a guy that called me Fletcher. So that's <laughs>
1: as, as simple as that. So it's basically Peter Butler's question then, and Monty Bodkin has also written about telling us something about Gilles that, that people don't already know. What was it like having, having Gilles as a, as a teammate and, and how did you get on with him? I think you obviously got on with him very well.
2: Yeah, I got on with all my teammates very, very well. Um, yeah, I mean, he was a real honest, naive in a way, because I think he was so, so, so much so. Um, but yeah, we were very friendly. Um, we were honest with each other, um, and I think when you like that, you don't have fights with your, or except I suppose a bit different when you're so superior like Mercedes are then it's only between you two. But, but uh, yeah, we both felt we were sh- must work together. We also thought the Italian press loved to get the drivers to fight. You can Before that, they were always putting the drivers, and we spoke and said, listen, we won't, we'll stick together. And that's what we did.
3: Can I just, you mentioned that uh, part of Gilles' downfall was that he was the showman, he wanted to be fastest on every lap, et cetera. Did you see a little bit of your early self, your younger self in, in Gilles? Because, I mean, you were res- you were renowned for being very spectacular, certainly in yeah. you know, Formula Ford, F3, yeah. F2, early yeah, F1 yeah, days. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, you know, I think that helped me when I was coming up. Um, yeah, I didn't. I was really just wanted to w- win the world championship, and I remember going to uh, Monza. That's when I won the championship, but. During practice and the, the, the um, week before, he was putting on qualifying tires all the time, and uh, in the newspaper, oh, Gilles breaks a record. And I got the hardest tires and just worked on setup, worked on setup, and I outqualified him and won the race. And um, yeah. So,
5: so you, you mentioned sticking together. Then I mean, was there a lot of pressure um, for in Italy from the Italian press?
2: Well, I always say that w- racing for. Ferrari compared to anywhere else. When you race for Ferrari, you're racing for Italy. When you race for McLarens or other cars, you're racing for that team. That's the big difference. So, good and bad, it's all over the all over. Did we care about it? Not really. I got the lemon prize three years in a row. The lemon prize. Worst guide to, to the journalists. <laughs> really? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Fabulous. Th- th- things have changed, um, I wonder if the, that's still a award. Yeah, I don't the, know. The lemon no, well, the they they, they respect it because I went and fetched the award. Uh, they, they oh, right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: there's actually what this is sort of actually what we were just talking about there from René Klaus. Um, and his first visit to a Formula One meeting was the Belgian Grand Prix at Zolder in 79. Um, and as a young boy, I had a, the experience had a, a lasting impression on him um it was also your first win for the for ferrari um what were your memories of that first ferrari victory and d- what did enzo say to you and and uh, what was the aftermath like
2: um the most thing i remember is i was leading and then there was one corner that got really slippery and i i didn't know if there's a lot of oil on there so yeah, i had to be probably a little more cautious than I had to be, but then it, it was okay, and, and I won the race, so that's about all I remember. I remember that. And I don't remember Ferrari saying anything. In fact, when I won the World Championship, he walked past me and said, hello, champion, and that was, that was it.
1: Really? The thing is, it probably meant quite a lot from him. From anyone else, it would have been a bit weird. <laughs> um, another sort of big name from Ferrari in those days was Mauro, Mauro Forghieri. What was he like to work with? Because you, you kind of hear so many... He was obviously this amazing engineer and things, but I think he was quite difficult to work with. This is a question from Guillaume. Um, I think that's, I don't think I pronounced that very well, but I'm not known for my French. Um, it, he basically wants to know a little bit about him and also his interpretation of ground facts and kind of the effects that he had on, on the car.
2: Well, I, I suppose I rated him more as a team manager. And, and he made things happen. That was, for me, his big skill. Um, from an engineering point of view, we didn't see eye-to-eye at uh, uh, some time. I mean, uh, you know, th- it was all ground effect cars, and they had the 12-cylinder, which was wide. And he had got the exhaust pipe in that little section. And actually, um, Silverstone, I had said they gave me the wrong um, laps to go, and I lost the place to, to Watson, and it was all over the Italian press. I say the team is, Monday morning, I want everybody, this is for I want everybody in... in uh, in the office so i spoke to joel i said listen we're going we need to get that exhaust pump out of that thing it's a bit obvious you know and so he said well he said well, why did you say this or this and I said, well, I said well i think uh we shouldn't fight with each other we've got to fight and he said okay then change the whole thing He said what can we do and i said well i we want to take the exhaust out of that place and then she obviously we agreed with each other and we took it out and went to Monza, and it was like 300 more revs, more downforce. And, and in Formula One, that is more than Christmas. I mean, that is, that is something you just want to jump out and scream. And so, so that was an improvement when we got there.
1: Uh, so uh, he was quite difficult. So, see,
2: he was difficult, but he made things happen, which was, you know, that's a, that's a great skill. From his pure engineering, you know, he's built some very good cars, so he obviously was good.
4: Did the Flat 12, um, when, when you first experienced it, having um, driven so many DFEs, did the Flat 12 initially feel um, uh, appropriate, feel powerful enough to be a racing engine, or could you feel that there were inherent issues with it? Uh, I didn't I don't think you can feel that difference. You know, you
2: can't. But the, the, when I, as I went Brazil, pulling out of those corners, the fr- the Fords were pulling away from us. So I thought, was it traction or was it uh, bottom end or whatever it is? I don't, I don't really know. But
4: yeah, yeah. But I suppose the compromise came came later on, didn't it, in the aero with, with the. Yeah. With the well,
2: I wa- I suggested they put the engine upright because it'd be very narrow then. <laughs> but i I wasn't probably as strong as some drivers (laughs) that that could it could have been done i'm sure with the oil problem it was a problem but yeah inside the air scoop the high (laughs) you know know.
1: brilliant so there's a i got a question here from anthony jenkins about your last year with ferrari being so difficult um the results didn't come do you regret not doing a rosberg and just retiring at the end of your world championship season
2: no no, not, not really not at all um you know, the car wasn't very good. I think the tyres were... had other people caught up or not. Um, I felt I was always driving as hard as I could, but I wasn't as... You know, Jill was beating me more often then than than the year before. I um, don't know. No, I decided halfway through the year that I was going to retire. So I didn't decide I was retiring at the beginning of the year. You know, it only went... It was in the middle of the year, and I suppose you gain a lot being world champion, doing the at least half the season till you get beaten. Mind you, I, I always say my, I, I was world champion for a week because uh, old man wanted me to go to Imola. and I said no. You know, because you eight years, the only thing you want to do is win the championship, and I didn't want to come from Monza and do a. A race a week later I said no I don't want to go no anyway eventually she had to go and she'll beat me there." so I thought that, it lasted <laughs> it, it, it lasted a week you know? um,
1: I, I'm going to rewind a bit actually to the pre-Ferrari days because I, I kind of jumped out jumped over lot, lots of questions there um, we've got quite an interesting one here from Peter Kaufman who uh, it's, um, it's amazing the number of people who saw you race that have written in with questions um, old people obviously. well <laughs> I, I don't know about that Jodie your words not mine um, he, he first saw you drive at Moseport, um, in Vasek Polax 917 in 1973, um, and the memory of your power slides through corner 10, lap after lap, will never leave me. Three months later, he saw you at the same track in the M23, but he doesn't recall your driving being quite so extroverted. Is that because the two cars required... Which, which track was that? Uh, this was at Moesport.
2: Uh, yeah. uh, that was my first race in the Am car. Um, but there was turbocharged, which was lagging, and... You, you had to put your foot down really early going into the corner and then it would come come in, it's at 1100 horsepower sometimes and no brakes. Um. Apart from that, it was, uh <laughs> it was fine. <laughs> Lovely to I ha- ride. I, I, have, I have the car now, you know. I oh, really? And, and uh, I mean, it's an amazing car. It's amazing, it's a 12,000 engine, you tie it to the engine and in front of your um, pedals, there's just a few little aluminum things like that that hold the body on and that's your protection.
4: I mean, I d- I, I, I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself and say I have driven a 917 not, not a 30 the thing that struck me um, was when I, when I looked down at where my feet were in the 917 it was a sunny day when I drove it I could see the sunshine reflecting off of the tarmac through the the fiberglass, yeah, and I and would I, and I I was feel sorry for you. I was but. beginning <laughs> to think, no, it, it was my dream. <laughs> my, you know, it's dream come true to drive this car, and then all I wanted to do was get out. You know, um, I was going to ask about this, this this interesting kind of, um, uh, I suppose, mix between enjoying driving the car and enjoying winning. How, if you had to place a ratio, if it was was it fifty fifty, you enjoyed driving, or well, seventy twenty, I, enjoyed winning?
2: I, I've always said I was motivated by the fear of losing. Okay. By the glory of winning, so sure. I think that that was more my motivation, um, and that was the pressure you put on yourself, I suppose. Yeah. yeah.
4: And the uh, and the enjoyment of driving a car did that. Does that move away the more successful you get? Um,
2: well, I think if you're enjoying it, you're not driving fast enough. <laughs>
1: but uh, that was probably the pressure. <laughs> That'll up, be why I, think, I enjoy it so much, then. Yeah, but,
2: uh, you know, the drivers always say the nice things. We didn't yeah. say it in those days. You know. we, yeah. Yeah. They asked me, w- w- there was some question, I think, for which would the drivers you'd like to have driven against, You know? yeah. and that yeah. means Fangio or name. So I looked up, I looked up, the worst driver I'd ever seen. He'd never come more than, like, 15th. And I said, yeah, I'd like to race against him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who, who was that driver?
1: I, I can't it. remember. <laughs> uh, having said that, I was going to rewind sort of before the Ferrari days. I've, there's a question here that um, from Simon Hurd about, about Ferrari. Uh, it's quite a nice one I want to ask. Um, wh- did you feel the mystery of Ferrari and the sort of Enzo's offices and kind of the whole thing that went with Ferrari or at that time, because you were still young at that stage, you did not have such an effect.
2: The first time they offered me something was when I was in McLarens and Montezemolo came up and Lauda was there and it came up and I think I was earning £3,000 and they offered me £40,000. And then I said no, you know, I've got a contract with McLarens. But I didn't come out of South Africa thinking Ferrari was everything. I think that side didn't mean anything to me, really. Um, but driving for Ferrari is very, very special.
1: And there's, there's actually a follow-up question from Simon saying, "And what did Enzo say when you when you quit?"
2: Um, I don't know if he said anything. I mean, go, going back to that other question, is I remember when I first went in to see him. And I met a guy at the motorway and he took me in and and then sort of in the middle of um, a modern, a a door opened and you shot in there. And then I went in, it was all dark and there were some bodyguards there and this white furniture, I remember. And I sat down and he said to me, how much money do you want? And um, I said, I'm too young to talk about money, which was probably the right thing to say and uh, i didn't get didn't we didn't do a deal that time but I, I think a couple of years later we did but that if you
4: say the, the mystery of that that was very much you know amazing so the conversation it, it was kicked off the subject was money it wasn't all my t- guess is he was trying to see where i was coming from yeah was i doing it for money or,
1: sure. or what, what's the name and and yeah. i wasn't doing it for money yeah 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 I mean, I don't think I would have fared very well against Enzo you know. <laughs> sort <of> a discussion <laughs> like that. Um there's uh, going from sort of one, t- you know, big name from f- Formula 1 to another one. Um this is from Lucio Chiodi. Um and he wants to know a little bit about Ken Tyrrell, Um and how important was he t- as a sportsman sort of man and driver but was Ken to you as a as a driver? Well,
2: I think Ken's r- biggest skill was being a race, you know, at the track. Getting the tactics right, what you should do around the track. I think the, for me, their technology was behind because I'd been with McLarens and they, they were more advanced. That's what I felt anyway. But he was a very practical guy, very friendly, um, very, very family-like. You know, we had dinner with them, which I would probably most teams. You, you are more friendly with your teams and with other drivers and things. Um, yeah, yeah. He wanted me to be like Jackie. I think that was the, the thing. He always said, "Well, Jackie did this and Jackie did that," and I, you know, I wasn't Jackie.
3: You said earlier on that um, after three years with Tyrrell, you were desperate to get away. What, what was it that kind of sort of broke your spirit at Tyrrell?
2: No, I, you know, I, I didn't rate the six-wheeler, and uh, Patrick, being French, said, "Oh, it's fantastic! It's fantastic!" And we were quite quick the first day, and then we were the same times the second day. But everybody was going faster. And he said, "It's rubbish. It's rubbish." You know. <laughs> <coughs> and I thought the theory behind it was not right, and so I suppose that pulled us apart a little bit. And and so I, it, I knew it was time for me to go. So I, I don't really think of anything more than that.
1: There's a there's a question here actually from David Hopkins about Patrick Depay. Um, do you have any? Patrick, stories to tell is his question.
2: Well, the one that stands out—well, a couple of stand out—but one that stands out is there was the one track, and now this is the first year in proper Formula One, and I go there and there's some SS I can't remember which uh, fifth gear, and I said, "Are you flat there?" He said, "Quite flat, quite flat." So, Jesus, okay. <laughs> in the dirt. about halfway through the season quite flat was not quite flat <laughs> <laughs> so that was a one, one so that was tr- that's true and the other one uh, i know, i won't tell you what that one was <laughs> so his girlfriend no one's a his same. girlfriend seemed to faint i don't know quite why <laughs>
1: Well I think that's a perfect moment um, just uh, for me to talk about this um, there's a a lifestyle thing that you can do on Mercedes-Benz website and if you go to mercedes-benz.co.uk forward slash lifestyle it's extremely clever you can put in your car registration number if you own a Mercedes and then it can tell you all the things that you can buy for it whether it's baby seats or uh, cup holders or iPad holders. Um, it's actually extremely clever. For the number of times that I've bought something that is for an entirely different model of car from mine, um, highly recommended. So do head along to Mercedes Benz.co.uk. Um, just uh, I'm sorry about ju- all jumping around. It is, um, I'm sort of trying to take as many of these questions as possible. It's quite an interesting one here from, again, this is another question from Lucio Chiodi. Um, Lucio, I really hope I'm actually pronouncing that right after putting so much effort into it um, he talks about sort of your arrival in Formula 1 and you know, how t- a lot of it was quite difficult and he's, he's asking basically as a Sal- South African did you feel a bit like an outsider coming into this at the time, quite predominantly sort of English environment did that cross your mind at all?
2: Well, I- in South Africa it was apartheid at that time and on um, um, one British Grand Prix there were threats to my life and the police followed me around at that time, um, so it didn't worry me too much. You know, I mean, I was just racing. I didn't care about anything else, as I remember, um, and I didn't feel any prejudice or anything like that. I didn't care about it actually did you uh, did you ever have, have any problems with sponsorship or anything like that during those days of, of a yeah. well that's what McLaren's they didn't want to, uh, their sponsors didn't want to sponsor me because I was South African so would I've got to drive a full driver because I got a half drive the the the, uh, the the second year with you know when I did one race at watkins glen was the first and then 73 I don't think I had five five drives and why I couldn't get a Permanent drive. I understood it was because the, they didn't want to sponsor a South African.
1: They that's do. the only. That's the only that I, I know. Mm. Or knew. Um, so we've got a question here from Marco Freire. Again, I hope the pronunciation's okay. It, he wants to know about uh, your win at Kyle Army in 1975 and and your memories of that of that race. Um, Massive crash in the last practice, going
2: down very fast. What's the name car was n- not written off, but close to that. Um, they rebuilt the car and put an engine in and warm up. I did one lap and the engine blew. So I started the race with a car that really has done one lap and a new engine. And I led from the second lap or third lap and won the race. So.
1: Kyle Army was a great circuit. Is that how you remember it? it as yeah. really fun. Yeah, I mean, drive. it had
2: some tweaks to it. The, the uh, qualifying got slower and slower and slower as the rubber came down. So you wanted to get your laps in really quickly. Um, and I always tried to run less wing than most people at most circuits. And uh, maybe that helped. I don't really know.
1: So excuse my ignorance, but I always thought as the a track rubbered in it got more grippy. Is that just a sort of a trait of Kyle Army or I,
2: I don't know if it was the oil coming up or what it was it was definitely a trait of Kyle Army. Um, but yes, you're right. I, I mean I agree with you. Normally when thank, as my god for <laughs> that <laughs> <laughs> more, more normally when more rubber comes down it, it gets grippier, but not there. I don't I don't quite know why.
1: Just, uh, just going off on a sort of a slight tangent, and I'll come back to the questions in a second. What what were your sort of what were your favourite tracks from a purely driver's perspective? What the when you were in Formula One? Uh, well, there must have been some that you thought would, you know you really looked forward to. And, and some that didn't.
2: Yeah, um, well, we'll, we'll get
1: to those in a second.
2: <laughs> Monaco. I loved really? to drive at Monaco, yeah. And did well at Monaco, you know. Um, I didn't like Kailami. Uh, I really didn't like Austria. Um, and Brazil I didn't like either. I think it was because it went the wrong way. <laughs> and the neck felt like it's going to fall <laughs> off halfway through But I never did well at those circuits. Um, Did the Nurburgring? I loved the Nurburgring. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, I really did. Yeah, because I got fastest lap I think twice there. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Um, And when you first drove the Nürburgring, um, I'm presuming you drove it in something with serious performance while well, most people were discovering the, the Nürburgring. Another story. G- <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I first went in, a I think it was a Capri or something with right. my wife and she was taking lap times. so we were going faster and faster and faster, going around uh, and then somebody offered me a drive in a Porsche okay. and so I thought well for the experience, well I did about a quarter lap and wrote it off. And that's, so, so they fixed it and I came to drive in the morning, but I was fired. Right. <laughs> so they said, no, no, you're not driving it anymore.
1: Okay. Blimey. I got the
2: quickest lap that next Grand Prix. So it sort of,
1: it, it worked. It worked.
2: <laughs> I felt better. <bad laughs> it was though. worth the risk.
1: Well, what was it about Monaco that you love so much? Because it's, hmm. it's, it's, as a on a Formula One car, it's, it can seem sort of quite a fiddly. I mean, I suppose it's a very intense experience because it's, Non-stop, but you know,
2: uh, uh, the first experience I had was, you know, you got there and you thought, well, where is going and try to sit up in the car to see where the track went. And then I remember coming in and he said, well, what revs are you getting in top gear? I said, I don't think I'm in top gear. <laughs> 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 and then um, w- once you got used to it, and I don't know, I think because my style of driving, I could slide the car so I could really slide it close to the to the, to the rails. But qualifying was everything. And, and it was quite spectacular, in fact, with Gilles and I, because we were going like this, was him and I, him and I, like that. And I remember touching the guardrail coming out of the corners like this. And then, you know, you had to go fast, and you can't go any faster. Well, like, we got to do fast. And then I was starting to touch the inside guardrail with the, with the front wheel and the outside with the outside. I mean, it got to that extent, you know. And the last lap, my front suspension, my front that little arm there, bent like this. And I remember coming in, and I thought Jules had got got me. And there was a journalist with a big camera there. I knocked the camera
3: out the way, so. but I <laughs> I got, <I> got pole. <laughs> when
2: you're
1: to, when you're driving to that sort of level, I mean, before you go to something like the Monaco Grand Prix, do you, do you did you ever question yourself whether you could do that again? Because it's, it's I mean, it's quite a it's, an amazing level of driving, isn't it? I know. would
2: never question myself, can I do it or not do it? I just was always questioning, how can I do it better? That was, that was always what you were doing, you are thinking, thinking. If you woke up at night, you were thinking, if I'd run that s- suspension or if i run the harder springs or something like that, that was the only thought that I ever had. You had thoughts of, because people were getting killed, one to two drivers, you thought, you know, maybe, maybe I won't come back, but once you're in the car... You thought about
4: how you make it faster. Do you think you ever achieved that? Do you, d- 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 there's an Enzo Ferrari quote that, I, that stuck in my mind: "Where there's no such thing as perfection, only striving towards it." I think it was the quote. Do you ever feel that you got to a point where you were like, "I've gotten, I can't give anything more." That was.
2: Well, I always say there's always there's always a percentage <laughs> after that, and that yeah. Monaco was a typical example. Right. You know, you would have said no, you can't, and then you, well, you knew you had to, and then you went out and you squeezed some more out, out of it. yeah. Probably one of my races I thought were to perfection not, was at um, Long Beach with the, with the Wolf. I led the whole way until about eight laps from then and I got a punch on my right-hand front tyre. And um, I thought that was a lap that I never, you know, it was just nearly perfect all through, through, the, through the
1: race. I'm still hunting for that perfect lap <laughs> might might take me might take me a few a few mm. decades um i just, i've uh, very professionally got a, a section in these um in these questions called random um that's <laughs> just because they didn't really fit into the first ones it's no It's no reflection on the quality of questions um just before i read out your names um there's quite a nice one here from alex martini i d- i don't know about this there was a Tom Schechter apparently in the nineteen thirties who raced um and he taught South Africa and did the East London GP. Was he any relation? He yeah, was my uncle. Really? And, and,
2: and, I, and I, as I mentioned it earlier, I said my uncle, uh, Brooklyn's Riley. I've got a picture of that and my dad sitting next to the car in, in my room. And um, I remember seeing his, I think it was a leather helmet. And he told me that the auto union blue attire, This is a story. And he went into the pits and passed him halfway around the circuit. I think it was the 11 mile circuit.
1: At that time, yeah. Amazing. So uh, going from one um, Thomas Thomas Schechter to another Thomas Schechter, your son, um, there's a question here from someone simply called GP uh, who wants to know about what you thought about your your son's sort of career trajectory. Um, But just before you answer that, um, there's quite a nice one here from Darrell McGrath, or McGrath, McGrath. Um, And this isn't so much a question um, as a lost opportunity. Uh, Your son was racing in the Formula Opel Euro Series in Mondello, here in Ireland, and in the paddock, uh, this guy and his wife, uh, newly married, were watching around the back of the circuit when he noticed a man near us in a green anorak. He said to his wife, Bloody hell, that's Jody Schechter. And there was nobody else around. And he says he t- to this day, he regrets not coming to say hello, and his wife still ribs him about it. Um, so Jodie, I hope you liked Ireland. It was cold, dampish September. You looked cold. I probably was. <laughs> you anyway, i say hello to him if he's watching me. <laughs> um, so it's just sort of go back to I think first of all, I might just sort of jump in with a different question. How was it taking sort of your son through, you know, climbing up the ladder when you had done it and you knew the difficulties and the potholes? And
2: it was my worst career.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I remember coming back
2: I you know won the championship, went to America, was very successful there. Coming back, I was in the same place at Brands Hatch, changing gears <laughs> <laughs> at the bottom of the of the of the paddock there, and I thought, boy, and then it, it was tough. It was tough, you know. Yeah, and don't, sorry.
3: Oh. I, was, I was just going to say, I mean, apart from the similarity of changing gears in the same place at Brands Hatch, were you? I mean, because you went away from the sport and you were barely seen, if at all, yeah, I during have, the 1890s, actually. years Ten years, actually, actually, yeah. um, what did, you, that, that, did you feel, apart from the you just mentioned, that, that the sport had changed? Could you see how much it had changed in your absence?
2: No, not really. Um, I, there was a point when I, d- I did, but, you know, with Thomas, I was, you know, I was at the back of the paddock, you know, and, and um, just doing that sort of thing. I didn't go there as world champion at all. Um, and then stayed in lousy hotels because the team was staying in lousy hotels, you know. And I was very technical. They always said, no, no, you can't be that technical with Thomas. So I was very technical with Thomas. I didn't really work on his driving as much as setting up the car and trying to do those things.
1: Was that quite satisfying though?
2: When he was doing well, yes. (laughs) (laughs) When he was crashing, no. (laughs) (laughs) But in the Opel he did, I think he did he won more races in, in the history of that series. Right. Yeah, he looked. He looked at that time, and then he got went into the Spanish race, and Alonso was there, and he was a, like a second and a bit quicker than anybody in a, a car that hadn't done well. The, he, the team that was doing open. So at that stage, he looked like you know the next what's his name.
1: Um, he wasn't. <laughs> do you do you think it was tougher? because of his surname for him? So there was a weight of expectation? Yeah, I think, I think with, with all, all people, people see you earlier, you know,
2: so you may not be quite good earlier, and then they're looking at you and say, oh, well, they're not good, but if you weren't, you wouldn't be seen at that time. You know, so maybe, but in other ways, some people could get sponsorship uh, easier. It never, would never work for me.
1: Uh, well, talking of sponsorship, Um, This is an advert in the fact that sponsorship actually works. There's a question here um, from Ricardo Toccato. and uh, But before the question, he says, I'm still eating Brooklyn chewing gum because I always loved the sponsor on his overalls. <laughs> hopefully not the <laughs> same so, piece. So, sorry, hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not <laughs> the same good. piece. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Sponsorship does work, guys. So go out there and support some young young racing drivers. Um, he wants to know how and when you decided your helmet design. He, he's a big fan of, of, of the colours and, uh, and the design on it.
2: I think the colours came from McLarens because it was a McLaren orange, although it also was a South African flag kind of. And
1: um, yeah, put my name on it. Well, there we go. That that's that question answered. <laughs>
4: <really>. <laughs> um, but, uh, I'm going to ask about the, the Brooklyn uh, Association. Um, that to me, when I when I see pictures and I and I and I look back, I don't remember seeing the prancing horse. But I, it, to me, it, you at that time was, was Brooklyn. How did that? How did you broker that deal and have such prominence as well at that well,
2: time? Well, the overalls were yours. Right. Yeah. So, and the helmet was yours. You had to. There was a Ferrari badge, and mm. I think there was the, the oil badge. I can't remember yeah. and stuff. But you had free of your overalls. It was part of the deal.
4: And you negotiated that yourself. With, well, with stake
2: went to Ferrari, and Ferrari put it onto me, and then oh. I negotiated that. Yeah. Because I was. It was one sponsor rather than lots. Because most drivers had lots of little bits, and I had just one, one sponsor, which was.
1: And again, more jumping around. So, thanks for. Bearing with me, Jody. There's a question here from Adrian King about who made the most resources available to you at the time between Ken Walter and Enzo. I just wanted to preempt that with what was Walter Wolf like?
2: Well, he was, he was. I don't know. He was a
1: bigger than life, you know.
2: And he promised everything, but if he did 70% of everything, it was more than other people. So that he had to deal with and. Um, yeah, you know, it's, he was, he was, th- I remember he had a Lamborghini and when you opened the door, the Hooter went, well, well, well. So, <laughs> people would see not only had a Lamborghini, but you had to look at that Lamborghini. <laughs> so, but he was, he was all right
1: at that time. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of working for that, you know, those sort of three big names from, from the history of the sport. Um, was there one that was particularly easier to work for? Because I, I mean, they're all very strong characters, Ken, Walter, and Enzo Ferrari. I mean, you, you did choose them, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. Um, they're all different. I didn't really, you know, when Walter wasn't, I was working for the team, which was uh, Peter Wall and Martin. He was more on the sideline uh, trying to give us what we needed to do, to, to race properly. Ken was different. Ken was totally in charge. Um, of everything and um, he was hard to work with but friendly and um, yeah and um, Enzo was I loved it at Ferrari, mainly because the food was so good. Come, come, you're, you're racing in England and you get this white bread with pickles on it and you go there and it's pasta and <laughs> what i hey, man. That's a, but the lap times after lunch were always slow. It doesn't matter what happened to got. But by tea time, it sort of came back up again.
3: That's
1: brilliant. I've got a uh, question from Chris Hall that, who wants to know the best three races that you drove against in your career and also the three quickest. And it doesn't have to just be F1, because um, you said that's not always the best indicator, which I think is very true. Oh, you're talking about drivers. Yeah, so they're they're the best best three drivers and the, and the three quickest. They might be the same, but...
2: Well, I, yeah, the drivers, I suppose, the, the drivers you like to drive against were ones that you could rely on. Amazon, Nikki. you could go into a corner with them, or, and you knew, and they were fast, there's no question about that. Um, like if G- you came up to Jerry, eh? you—he was the worst because you didn't know if he was going to or wasn't going to or anything. <coughs> he was just, yeah. But um, yeah, I suppose you know James. James Hunt was quick for a short period. Um, but you—you, you, I think you always looked at the car more than the. the you, if they beat you, it was the car. And <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> if you beat them, it was the driver, obviously. <laughs> but, I think I think he r- more, I looked, anyway, as the car, what could I do to make it go fast and things like that. How highly did you rate Tom Price? I didn't really. I know some people did ra- rate him quite highly. I don't really have any re- recollection of that at all. I don't remember racing against him. I I don't really know. I have no opinion of that, yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, you've mentioned a few times just through the, this podcast about the cars, and you said, or you know, you've got that, or you're getting that restored. If, if you tried to get together all the cars that you raced, is that what's going on? Or?
2: Yeah, well, no, I, I I'm a farmer now, so I can't afford it. But <laughs> but when I came back from America, um, I collected. And I've got thirteen of my cars that I drove. So, so yeah. how, how
1: many? But I mean, that's quite. i so I got a lot. Formula
2: Ford, Formula Three. Formula two, Formula twos, one Rondell and one McLaren. Um, I've got a f- Formula Five Thousand, and I've got um, Terrell, six wheeler. I've got two McLarens, nineteen mm-hmm. and twenty-three, Ferrari, Porsche. I
4: think that's. And do you keep them. I keep. Fully operational and um, sort of. as yeah. best you can. Sort of, yeah. yeah, I can hear the cops wearing again. Well, ju- yeah, a <laughs> tractor Yeah, no, I just wonder which you know the, the when the when you feel the fire burn inside, is there, is there a car that you'd love to just jump in and do a few laps of the of the Nürburgring? It's it's, uh, it's my
2: road car. My, uh, my favorite road car is uh, the A Class AMG Mercedes and it's very on brand. The, A40, A40, Jody. the A45 no it, it, yeah. it is, it, no I, yeah. I i have arrangements with societies but they don't give me enough cars so, <laughs> so 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 i went and leased that car and paid for it and uh it's just it's a rocket it's, isn't it it's a little rocket oh it's mm. a lovely little car you know mm. i don't want to drive old cars you know cuz th- that cars so much so nice you
1: yeah. know mm. do i mean do you do, you do do you use the races at all? Do you get to take them out much? I'm just thinking. I'm no. sure there's some listeners and viewers who would love to see you in X, Y, Z and the Ferrari or the Porsche.
2: Uh, I've taken them out to some charity. I've taken them to Bahrain when they had all the world champions there, and we have car fest at our at our. And I take two or three of the cars down the circuit there. How, to,
1: how was that Bahrain reunion? Because it was an amazing roll call of names and yeah. cars. You, you were yeah. there, weren't you? Yeah.
2: Yeah. For me I' don't know, it was the only time that I felt that since I've retired that you've been honored as world champion because you know f- at some time it was hard to get a, a, a PITS ticket, although Bernie was trying to teach me a lesson because I probably insulted him <laughs> but, <laughs> but 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 um, but, but um, you know I go re- I, I haven't been to a race for three years, and when I retired, I didn't go for ten years because you go that in the back, you know. It's you're not part of it anymore. And it's like tennis, you go there if you won that, they'll put you in a special box and everything. That doesn't happen in
4: um, in Formula One. I think that's a really interesting point, isn't it? I mean, it's been left, you know, not left to, but it's it, the fans and and the media have promoted the glory of Formula One's past more than Formula One no, itself. I, think people, people don't. Know, yeah. I must say, I always enjoy the cars
2: that. When I was growing up, I loved Mm. and so those were the ones before me and they have a a nicer feel when I look at them. And I think the guys that liked our cars were probably when they first went to circuit and and saw them.
1: When when you did retire, did you find it hard to switch off and and be doing something totally different?
2: No, I I didn't retire because I had something to do, I knew I had to retire and then I did try to organise a world series of the same cars and worked on that for a year and then organized some um, motor gp races at donnington and then i saw this advert in a magazine which was a simulator for, a, for shooting guns so a, a live ra- on live guns on a paper screen and you stop and i went over to america and started that company on the kitchen table so that kept me busy for 12 years
1: mm. well there's there's a couple of Questions here about Laverstoke, which is obviously what you're doing now and what you went into after that. Um, first of all, it's Chris Hall who asked the earlier um, question about the three quickest drivers. Um, he he asked, "What's your org- organic beer like, and do you do volume discounts?" <laughs> 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 there's, there's lots of lots we, of your organic we beer. We fans don't sell out volume there. at the moment. <laughs> yeah. um, there's there's one from uh, Max Johnson, which is. He's basically interested in the decision to become an organic farmer right. and the history and motivation behind that. Because it, I mean, it was a complete departure from what you were doing before. How on earth did it Well, That's it my third about? career.
2: I'd yeah. like to say it's my fourth. But the beer's lovely, just to answer yeah. your question. <laughs> it, wa- it won the two stars in the Taste Awards twice. In the, and the, um, the lager won the best organic lager. But they are lovely. I, 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 and, and Le Manoir's taking them now. As well, I think also Chud and glen are also taking them. Yeah,
1: and and do you do volume discount?
2: <laughs> we we had them in. We uh, were doing really well in Waitrose and Sainsbury's, and it was in retail for five years. And somebody complained because we had our little Mr. Leverstock on there. Yes, I, guess I remember this. Yeah, because
1: yeah, so there was a, there was a cartoon sort of children's cut drawing on the front of the. Well, beer. it was Mr. Leverstock. We yeah. had it on all our brands, Yeah, yeah. And, and, and
2: they took it. Went in this meeting, which is just completely ridiculous. Came back and said, You've got to take it off. You send me a, a new, uh, what's name within three weeks, a new label within three weeks, and we're going to tell all the licensing boards and everybody to take it out. And the big supermarkets had signed up for it. So I sent them a new one with Mr. Leverstock going <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, because, <laughs>
1: because, <laughs> for, for those of you listening, there, there might have been a finger involved. It was it,
2: it was so stupid because they eventually said to me, "Well, what happens if a three-year-old takes it and drinks it?" And and that's how ridiculous it was because no teenager is going to be wanting to drink it with a Mister. You know, as a baby. Well, my answer was, "It's better than fairy liquid for
1: them." <laughs> yeah. 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 So. Uh, just going on to sorry, Max's question. Um, wha- how, do, how did the farm come about? Wh- why go into that as your third or fourth? I, was, I always
2: did a lot of exercise and I always was a foodie. So when I came there I bought from America, I bought 530 acres and said, OK, I want to um, produce my own food for myself and my family. And that's how it started. And then, stupidly, I became a passion and I say a disease and... Um, I went to seminars and read books. I got about 500 books, a lot of them from the beginning of the century because I felt that was the best time for natural farming. And I bought the farm next door. That was 2,500 acres and, and then just went everything. And I had the finance to do that, which was probably negative and positive. But I did everything. I put a lab with a doctor in microbiology, a doctor in chemistry, studying soils. So I went to every degree from the soil right through to the plate. Uh, put in an abattoir, did everything, and um, it was great. Produced fantastic products. Financially, it was a disaster because it was, a, you're it,
1: saying it, past tense though, which is always good news. What so a disaster! It was a disaster, but it's, well, I'm, I've, <laughs> s-
2: I've simplified it out. And you know, food, you've got to do volume. Doesn't matter how much you charge. I mean, a, a, a chicken probably cost me ten pounds to produce. And you can buy one for two pounds at Tesco's. So, you know, and, and it takes me how long to prepare a chicken where they're doing, you know, 100 a minute somewhere else and we're doing one in a half an hour type of thing. That's, that's, you have to do volume. And that's what we do now with the mozzarella and some charcuterie and stuff like that.
1: 10 pounds of chicken, that, they must be absolutely wonderful chickens.
2: Well, th- we've run ours for over 100 days. And a chicken in the store will be 36 days from an egg to that size, never been outside, F- fed with antibiotics and all sorts of things. So there's a difference, and it costs you that much. People think it's ridiculous to do it, but if you're doing it properly, it costs you that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> amazing. I, sorry. sorry. I was
5: going to say, you mentioned your careers just then. I'm, I'm interested in how you see yourself. Do you see yourself as a... If you look at your life, do you An regard yourself actually. as a especially <laughs> <laughs> after the last one, <laughs> racing driver, businessman, or farmer?
2: I don't know. I, you know, I, I think I don't get nervous to take challenges, and and I think I can do anything, um, and so when I want to do something, I go for I don't try and look at well, what is it going to take to get there. I just say, I'm going to get there and then I do it, which is a very hard way to do it. Um, I don't know. It's possible it's, it's, it's trying it's, it's, to have fun, that's all. Can <laughs> you say which, which of your careers get, has given you the most satisfaction? Um, you know, I think the racing, the, the satisfaction also is public. Then you go to the company and it's very exciting, you're growing like that, you know. last three years were, it, were 29, 60, 100 million dollars sales. So it's very exciting, you know, you in the back there producing new technologies, doing stuff like this. It's a bit like Formula One from that point of view. And you get the same satisfaction from that as you did from racing, but it's not public. Um, and then the farm, well, it was very satisfying until I realised how financially bad it was. And then it's been very, very hard to try and turn that around. And so we're we, we hopefully going to turn it around this next, following year.
3: Are, are there any skill, skill sets that you've been able to carry over from one career to the next? Uh, absolutely,
2: oh. absolutely. I think Such everybody hopefully does that through their through their, their careers and through their age. But yes, you know, Formula One was very much uh, the quickest technology ad- advancement in any industry, even more than wartime. So when I went into America, um, I could move technology faster than anybody. And also preparing for... A, s- a sport let's say and racing you were preparing for a sport and that we were making simulators that were teaching police and military how to get ready to go to war or go into a situation the basis of that is the same as getting ready for a race and so those were the two lessons that I learned from from, from that career
1: So we're, t- we're very sadly running out of time um, I'll just take a last question here from, from Anthony Jenkins um, who says you've made a success in two fields since your retirement. Did you ever consider going into team ownership in F1 or Indy cars? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> there we go. Definitely not. <laughs> 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 I,
4: I, I was going to go back a little bit. You mentioned earlier on that you tried to set up a World Series for a single mate car. I, I, I've not heard that before. Tell yeah, me a yeah, 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 little yeah, bit more yeah, about, about what and Yeah, uh,
2: I was trying to get uh, the f- Cosworth uh, V8 into... I think it was a capri or escort at that time, Sounds and fabulous. then have it all over here, yeah, <laughs> And I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was talking to television, talking to the manufacturers, and going like that. And yeah. eventually, it didn't happen. So,
4: was it kind of a? Uh, had you seen what happened with Pro Car and BMW, and you thought that, that colour was it? That colour bro well, drivers. It
2: was more the, the and American series. Okay. Um, what was it? IROC. That's mm, right. I Did yeah. I Rock a couple of years, and I thought, yeah. why don't I do a, a worldwide IROC? Yeah. So I'd have Indy drivers, Formula One drivers, sports car drivers, and do it on a worldwide basis. That was yeah. the
4: idea. Yeah. I'd watch it.
3: Before we switch yeah. off completely, do you have any fond memories of the um, Escort Mexico Challenge in your early? In your, I, I would say. I would say. <laughs> Simon, Simon
1: has to been, been desperate he's <laughs> to, ask, to ask this question since. he's small. You, yeah. Smiling, you <laughs> must have some happiness. I know.
2: some quite fun. What's uh, yeah. name? Was it, Gillian Fortescue Thomas? She was a lady that was in there. And I read Brand's hat. She went sideways. She wouldn't let me pass. So I just kept my foot flat and pushed her sideways down the <laughs> hill went, like this. And then the other time I blew my calf or crashed it. And we went to have a beer afterwards. And somebody lent me their car. So I'd had a beer. Should I go back there? And then I went back and raced. <laughs> Shouldn't happy, we say happy it, I suppose <laughs> it should yeah. we say it. Yeah, yeah. No, It was, 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 was only exactly, one that, that was beer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it was non-alcoholic. Yeah. 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 Yes. Exactly. <laughs> um,
1: Organic, non-alcoholic. Yes, exactly. Organic and non-alcoholic beer. Thank you so much, Jody. It's, yeah, it's extremely good. kind for sparing so much time. Thank you, Simon. Thank you to Alan, as always, for doing the sound. Uh, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Nick. Um, and thank you to, for Mercedes for actually supporting these and, and making them possible. Um, we'll see you all next month for another motorsport podcast. Until then, bye bye for now.
0: Some things are made to cope with puddles and rain. Others deal with the stickiest of mud. And as for the snow, that takes a warm coat and sure footing. But when it comes to dealing with all conditions, there's only one thing that springs to mind. Mercedes-Benz formatic. all-wheel drive performance in any condition. So whatever the weather or road throws at you, you're ready. To see the Fullmatic range for yourself, visit your local Mercedes Benz retailer.